0: Be reading the scriptures, the Ephesians 5, 21, uh, through the end of the chapter 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, though also wives, Should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleaning her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband.
1: morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Joanna for that light reading we had um, i've heard it said of this passage that it's uh, like a few people in our city it's both rich and famous um, there's a lot in there, and there's a lot uh, that people know about and maybe to some people it's infamous um, i uh As we are continuing in this uh, series on Ephesians today, the passage that we're reading is actually the longest passage in the New Testament about marriage. And it really shows us some of the deep wisdom and really the the heart that God has uh, for marriage and his designs on it. But I must also say and acknowledge that it is a tense subject for a lot of people. And I know that. I know that this passage has been hotly debated for decades in the church. I know that there are trigger words uh, for some people, like submission and headship and authority that get thrown around. And I want to humbly say I'm not unaware of the disagreements um, about this text and the debates around it. I'm not unaware even of how this text has been used and abused um, to hurt people and to create hurtful relationship dynamics that are not supported by the Bible. And I think on the other time, this passage, in in, in an effort to avoid that, people have just ignored this passage totally and said, oh, it doesn't apply to us anymore. So I want to start by acknowledging all that and also just to say As a pastor, I'm called to preach the word, and as believers in Jesus, we're called to follow the word and to find out what it means for us. What is God trying to say to us, and what is the heart of God for us from this passage? You know, uh, in that worship time, time of worship that we just had that the band let us in, oh my gosh, I just sensed the spirit of God so strongly, and... I went back around to come uh, around this way and I saw Vince and Tom and um, Tom said, how are you doing? And I, all I could say was, I'm broken. <laughs> it was like the only words that came out. And, and I felt, the moment after that, I just realized I felt like I was feeling a little bit of God's heart for what he wants to say to us about marriage because I know it's such a, it's a topic that's near and dear to many of us. It's a topic that, Um, pretty much no one, pretty much everyone has feelings about, some kind of feelings, and they're usually intense feelings, and I know that the people that I'm talking to today, some of you, you may be, some of you, you're married, some of you, you're not, some of you, you're divorced, some of you have a great marriage, and things are going well right now, some of you, things are so rocky, and you barely made it here today, and I'm not guessing about that, I know that. Because I know you, and we talk. <laughs> and those of you, I don't know, I'm still, I guess I am guessing. But <laughs> I think it's an educated guess. <laughs> but there is beauty and there is wisdom in this passage to be mined out. It's, it's stuff that we need because our culture, ma- marriage has been through the ringer in our culture. Yeah. Marriage has been... Um, Defined and redefined, attempted to be redefined. There's different cultures that have different expectations for marriage. That Everyone thinks they know what marriage is in our society, but I feel like our society is proving to ourselves that we might know, sadly, we might know more about divorce than how to happily be married. 40 to 50% of married couples in the U.S. Divorce. That's a verified statistic. American Psychological Association and anywhere else, just Google it. And then for those who get divorced, the divorce rate for the people who remarry is even higher. We have a problem with knowing what marriage is, and yet, I don't know if you're like me, I think we just all assume, oh yeah, I know what marriage is, I know what it's supposed to be. But I think that If we come to this passage with a humble heart, we'll see that God has a lot to show us about what marriage means and what even a Christian marriage is. I want to say something else, and I have a bunch of notes, and I'm already off them, so. They're there. I'll look at them, but um, so just stick with me. I'm going to do my best. Um, but I want to say something. There's a baseline um, that the Bible gives us when we talk about gender, when we talk about men and women, when we talk about marriage. There's a, there's a baseline that we need to be aware of when we're reading this passage. First thing is this. God is our creator. In the beginning, God created. First words of the Bible on the first Page And in the first page, in the first chapter, it says that God created male and female and that he created them equally in the image of God. That men and women are created equal. He says uh, he created mankind, male and female created them or in the image of God, male and female created he them. And they're both told to go and rule creation and subdue it and to steward it for God's glory. If you don't believe me, read Genesis 1, 27 and 28. The baseline there is that in God's eyes, to the creator who created us, he created us equal. And that's actually the basis that Christians have for human rights, because we're created in the image of God. Every person, every human being is worthy of dignity and honor and respect, regardless of their choices or regardless of their status or regardless of their gender. Christians believe And we actually have a better basis for human rights than people who don't believe the Bible because science doesn't prove it. There's no way to prove it outside of the Bible that we hold that God created us so we're creatures. He made us in his image, and he made us equally in his image. Another part of the baseline is this. God created distinction between male and female. God created differences between male and female, physical differences, physiological differences, even spiritual and emotional, he created us to complement one another so that men and women are equal but not interchangeable. Does that make sense? There are, there, are things that, um, there are things that God created men for, and there are things that God created women for, but we are equal in God's eyes. We're equally made in the image of God, but we're not interchangeable. I think one of those things, I mean, that we've seen in our community. Uh, Happening a lot is just pregnancy. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of the duh. Oh, yeah, that's one thing. I'm not, I'm by no means saying that's what women are created for. That's the only thing. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but I'm saying that's something that men can't do, right? And what an honor and a beautiful privilege it is, and how amazing that our Creator made us in that way with these differences. And I know that even just saying that men and women are equal but not interchangeable. Is controversial in our time and place, but not according to God and to the baseline in Scripture. It's on the first page, and it's all throughout. Another part of the baseline, just, and those, those of you who do our community Bible reading, you would have seen this this week in Romans 16. I love that passage because Paul is just saluting these people in ministry, and it's women and men, powerhouse women and men, that have been working hard in ministry for the Lord, and he says they're worthy of honor. And I love that passage because the same person who wrote that passage wrote this passage. That's why I'm saying you've got to understand what the baseline is coming into this. So there's beauty and wisdom in this passage. This passage and the confusion in our culture about marriage is one of the reasons I began to ask couples when I do premarital counseling and they're, they're going to get married. One of the questions I began to ask is, do you want a Christian marriage? Do you want a Christian marriage? Because it sounds a little bit funny, but Christian marriage is different. And this this passage really shows us what a Christian marriage is like. And Christian marriage ultimately is meant to declare the gospel and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ even through our relationships, even through one of the most intimate covenant relationships we know of in human experience. That even that, and I love that about God, that he's, he doesn't give us just the big idea. He says, this is how it shows up in your life. This is how it shows up in the everyday. So when we read this passage, we've got to wrestle with it. And, and I know there, you may come from different camps. You may have all kinds of different, um, different feelings about this text, and maybe you've studied it. And, and I want to tell you right now, I can't, I, I'm not going to solve a debate for you today. Like, I can't. I can't, I can't tell you how many hours and hours I've talked about this with people. I've talked about this with my wife, Hannah. I've talked about it with Vincent Nancy. I've studied it. I can't tell you. so you don't want me to try to tell you all the different ways that you can look at things. But what I am called to do is to preach Christ through this passage. And, and I am here to say that we've got to wrestle with this passage. We can't do two of the two of the main things that I two of the errors that I see Christians do when it comes to this passage. And the shortest way I can say it is, um, you know, you think of the, uh, like a keyboard, cords, uh, uh, whatever. Did I say keyboard, chords? <laughs> whatever. A keyboard. Yeah. Uh, control V or Control X. Those are the two errors I think of with this passage. Control V, which is just pasting, right? Copy, paste. And then Control X, which is just cut without paste, right? <laughs> are you guys tracking? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's, there's times where, where people are tempted to just paste this text, lift it out of Scripture, lift it out of this letter, lift it out of the time in which it was written, and just paste it everywhere without thought or prayer or discussion or saying, how does this apply to us? And then on the other side, there's, there's people who, for one reason or another, it's too uncomfortable. It brings up bad thoughts. This passage is the reason why I left the church. I'm just going to cut it. Control-X. And, and I had a page and a half of notes to talk about what control V is and what control X, but I'm going to skip that because I think we get it. Yeah. And, and, and the errors that can happen there is one of those is c- control V, we're, we, we, we're tempted to not use our minds. And control X, we're tempted to not surrender our will. And yet we know as Christians, both of those are wrong because Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So we can't just simply control V or control X. We've got to wrestle with it like Jacob wrestled with the angel of God and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Did you know that the name Israel actually means that, one who struggles with God? We've got to be that way with this passage because we do have something to offer the world when it comes to gender and marriage. A world that's really confused and a world that experiences so much brokenness in those categories. So the three, three points, because I have to have three points, right? The three points that I want to highlight and just talk about for a little while from this passage are, are about Christian marriage, and I, I want to point out This, Christian marriage is cruciform, Christian marriage is countercultural, Christian marriage is a mysterious union. Cruciform, countercultural, and a mysterious union. First of all, cruciform, I know that's a funny word and it's weird, but it's really beautiful and it's actually really simple. It just means this, shaped like a cross. Someone says something is cruciform, it means it's shaped like a cross. Like a cross. And Christian marriage, just like the Christian life, is shaped by the cross of Jesus. The way we're called to walk is the way of the cross. And why this is so important is because human nature, we're just naturally about me. Uh, I am. Anyone gonna admit that? Yeah. I, I don't wake up thinking about everyone else's needs, <laughs> I don't wake up thinking about me. And what I need, I, I, I go through life thinking, naturally thinking about what I want or what I hope for, or what I dream, or even what I deserve or how I deserve to be treated. And that that goes into marriage too. We all have these hopes, dreams, um, but it, it, it just naturally those turn into expectations too. I, I, I remember when Hannah and I got engaged um, and in the summer of 2015, and we were planning the wedding, and we were so excited, we're going to enter this, we're preparing to enter this covenant of marriage. And uh, the first road bump we hit, in planning we were planning for the wedding, so we weren't married yet. <laughs> and, um, and we realized just the difference in cultures. I, I come from uh, the American South, I come from Arkansas, Her, she has a Filipino heritage. In, in the South, and our, and our difference that we found out that we had no idea was who's going to pay for the wedding. Who's going to do the bulk of it, right? And we knew we are both adults. We're going to contribute all that we can, and, and everything's not real traditional. But in, in my family and in my, my culture, it was, it was like the, the father of the bride. The family of the bride did the brunt of um, the cost for the wedding, right? And, but in Filipino culture, and I had no idea, it's the family of the groom that does most of the cost for the wedding, and my family had had uh, two daughters and paid for two weddings. And her family had two sons, and they had just paid for two weddings. <laughs> and so we're making a budget for our own wedding, and we get to that point like, oh, wow. <laughs> I thought you were going to. No, I thought you were going to. Well, in my culture, they do this. Well, in my culture, they do this. And um, that had a, it had a great ending, and it was helpful. But I just share that as that was uh, just a first wake-up call to, you don't even know the expectations that you have and that you put on, on, on your spouse when you're going into it. Because to you, they're just hopes and dreams and desires, but when you hand them to the other person, they feel like expectations. <laughs> and they can weigh people down, and they can, you can crush someone, and it can turn into what I owe you or what you owe me. What does she owe me? What do I owe her? But Christians are called... To have a marriage that's shaped by the way of a cross. One of the ways we do that is we're called to live by the golden rule love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a command to love yourself. (laughs) Jesus assumed that you love yourself (laughs) because you take care of yourself, and he says, Love your neighbor like that. Like you are passionate to meet your own needs, be passionate to meet the needs of others. And we try to do that, but we still fall short. And and really, Jesus put the bar even higher because on the night before his death, he's sitting around with his followers and he says, I give you a new command, which would have sounded weird to them because only God gives commands. He says, I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. Not just love your neighbors, yourself. Love one another as I love you. And they're thinking about how did he love me? How did he welcome me? How did he bring me in, even though I was a tax collector? How did he bring me in as a fisherman? How did he bring me in as a zealot? How did he bring uh, Philip or Nathaniel who said, nothing good can come out of Nazareth, like someone who dissed Jesus' whole family and culture? <laughs> how did he bring him in and never bring it up again? How did he love me? But then that very night, how did he love them? He went out... <laughs> To a garden, and then he was arrested, and then he was beaten, and then he went through a horrible farce of a trial, and then he was crucified, a torturous death on a cross, and his followers didn't understand it at all in the moment, but eventually they became convinced and understood that he did that on the cross for me. He did that for my sins and for your sins and the sins of the whole world. And they saw their eyes were opened to Isaiah 53 where it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Men, that's the way that Jesus has loved you. And that's the way husbands and wives, Jesus calls you to love your spouse. And the commands that are given to us in this scripture are the way in which we are called husbands to love your wives and wives to love your husbands. And I want to make this connection for you, too, because as I was studying it, this stood out a lot. The the commands that husbands and wives are given here are based in things that all Christians are called to do. They're based in things that we're all called to do when we follow the way of the cross. Let me give an example. Verse 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, And that word submit means to voluntarily choose, to make a decision, to put yourself under the authority of another. But the command is given, if you look at the previous verse, the command that's given there says what? 521, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the command that's in 22 is not some foreign random command. It's actually based in what all Christians are called to do have an attitude of submission to one another. And it's not because one another deserve our respect. No, it's because of what Christ has done. Submit to one another out of deep awe and reverence and respect because of the way Christ has loved you. And actually in verse 21, that's a am getting a little grammatical, but it's a participle. It's not the main verb. The main verb is in verse 18. And that verb says, be filled with the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, read along with them. But it says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, this is how it's going to look. You're going to sing songs in your heart. You're going to address one another with praise. And then it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Did you know that an evidence of you being full of the Holy Spirit is having an attitude of submission to other Christians? And so it's not some random thing that's used to push down and saying, hey, All Christians are called to have this attitude, and wives, you're called specifically in marriage to exhibit this as a way that you're honoring Christ. John Calvin said this in the 1500s, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community. It is Highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to each other in their turn. Husbands, you're told to love, and not just an emotional love, but you're told to give yourself up in love, like Christ gave himself up for the church. And how did he, I just talked about, what did he do? He died. That's what. Husband, you're called to do towards your wife. You're called to die to yourself. And I want you to see, too, it's not just a random thing that you're given because in the same chapter, chapter 5, verse 2, speaking to all Christians, and and, uh, I spoke on this a few weeks ago, it says this, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the command that husbands are given is based in the command that all Christians are given. But husbands, what does it look like? It means means being willing to die to yourself what you want, what you think you deserve, in order to serve the good of your wife, in order to serve what she needs. Whatever life is to you in the everyday, it means to love your wife more than that. Both commands, the commands are distinct, but both commands are based in what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to walk in the way of the cross. And, and more than that, both are practice in putting others first. Not just in idea land, but in real life. You ever notice how easy it is to love an idea, but then when it comes down to practicing it, it's tough? You ever realize how easy it is to say you'd die for someone, but then not be willing to change your schedule for them? You ever realize how easy it is to say, i do anything for that person, but then how hard it is to turn off ESPN if they need to talk? I know I'm stepping on toes. I'm just, my, my whole Heart has been stepped on in in preparing for this. I hope you hear the humility, but I want to make it practical for us. Charlie Brown, the great philosopher, (laughs) said, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. I have a much longer quote, but I don't want to bore you with it. But what I'm getting to is this. Submit. Love. Give yourself up. Neither one is easy. And frankly, I don't think any couple has ever done it perfectly. But there is one who has. Jesus fulfilled both these commands by his work on the cross. Jesus shows us perfect submission and perfect Love, let me give you an example of each. In the garden on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is praying and he's in turmoil knowing what he's going to face on the cross. And he's, he knows that this is why he's come. This is his hour. But he also knows the pain that it's gonna bring him. And he prays and he says, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. But then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Your will be done. That's why Philippians 2 says that even though he had equality with God, he considered it not something to be grasped, but he laid aside his rights. I'm paraphrasing here. He laid aside his rights, and he became a servant, and he became obedient even to death, and now he's exalted the name above every name. Jesus perfectly submitted. He was equal to God the Father, equal to the Holy Spirit. He's not subservient. He's not less than. He's not worthless. If you believe in the Trinity, you believe that he was equal, but Jesus submitted, and he did it perfectly, and he did it for our good. He did it for the good of another. On the other hand, Jesus perfectly loved. John 10, Jesus speaking, says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. That's why it says in 1 Peter 3, Peter's describing what Jesus did on the cross. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that means he never sinned, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's us, that's me, that's you. To bring you to God. For he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And did you know, I'm sure many of you did, but while Jesus was on the cross, he said something about the very people who were killing him. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even while he was giving himself up for us, he was praying for our forgiveness. That's, what, that's how Jesus perfectly loved us. And so in our culture where in marriage, we look for self-fulfillment. We look for what is going to make me happy, who is going to bring out the best in me. Ironically, that way of looking at it leads to less fulfillment. And it burdens our spouse with unrealistic expectations that no one can carry. And it burdens us with an attitude that we're always owed. It becomes, what do you owe me? Well, let's negotiate about this. I owe you this, you owe me this. You, you realize something about if, if, uh, if you owe me $100 and you give me $75, like, if you owe me money, you can't give me money. <laughs> if you owe me $100 and you give me $75, I might say thanks, but I'll, then I'll say, where's the rest? <laughs> I can't receive it as a gift if it's always about owing and who's owed. But in Christian marriage, it says, no, I don't owe, you don't owe me anything because Jesus Christ gave everything. Christian marriage is shaped like the cross. You're looking to serve the other because Christ served you. You're looking to love the other because Christ loved you. It's shaped not in taking up our rights, but in laying them down for others. And that actually leads, this passage says, to deeper commitment and deeper unity and deeper fellowship with God. Because you understand him even more more in real life. And I think that's another picture and a practical reason why Jesus said this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for me, will save it. For me, seeing the passage in this way brings conviction. And I think, if we're honest, it, it, it should to all of us, whether you're here and you're married or you're here and you're single or you're here and divorced or whatever, whatever your situation to me, it makes me think, am I coming to my marriage in this way? Am I looking to get what I want in my marriage? Or am I looking for what God wants for me and what God wants for my wife? I think we have to ask ourselves hard questions. Wives, wives have to ask, are there places in my life where I'm making that voluntary choice to have an attitude of submission? Husbands, is your relationship marked by, characterized by this attitude of giving myself up for the good of my wife, of knowing what I want, but not just going for what I want, being willing to give it up for her good and for her benefit? And wherever you are today in that, my challenge would just be to to humbly ask the Holy Spirit, what's next? What's the next step? Marriage is much more complicated than I can give a talk on in whatever time we have here today. But one thing that's simple and one thing I believe that the Lord will lead us is when we ask, Holy Spirit, what's next? How can I respond to your word? Amen? Christian marriage is cruciform. It's in the shape of the cross. Secondly, Christian marriage is countercultural. I just want to hit on a few things briefly. Um, I'm not going to be able to get to the bottom or the end of any of this, but hopefully the Holy Spirit is uh, leading us and speaking to us today. First thing, Christian marriage is countercultural in that it's about uh, uh, sanctifying, not supplementing. There's a way that our culture is set up where we, typically when we're looking for a marriage partner, we're thinking, I want someone, uh, some people might even say, I I want someone who's not going to change me. I want someone who's going to accept me as I am and just kind of enhance what what I have and what I'm meant to be. But this passage focuses that marriage uh, is actually meant to change you and that your spouse is given to you as a gift from God and an instrument from God to shape you more into the character of Christ. Yeah. And Christians, therefore, should go into marriage not thinking, I just want to stay the same and they need to support me in everything that I want to do right now, but instead thinking, I look forward to how God is going to shape me and make me more holy, and the, and the, and the fights are actually going to bring us together. They're not going to bring us to intractable differences, but they're going to show us, how can how can I submit? How can I give up? Is this making sense? It's countercultural. Naturally, you want to say, I want to look for someone to supplement me, but the scripture says we need to look for someone to sanctify, to help us in that um, passage of sanctifying. Secondly, it's countercultural because... Christian marriage is about covenant more so than it's about chemistry. It's about covenant, more about covenant than chemistry. How do you know that culturally chemistry is important? Yeah. <laughs> Amen, Pastor. <laughs> Chemistry is important in our culture. You want to be able to get along, obviously, and I'm not really refuting that, but I think sometimes we make it all about chemistry. Yeah. And, and I think we even like literally make it about chemistry when we make it about the feeling of love. Like if you look into it, the science associated with the feelings of love, one of the big ones is dopamine, right? When you're falling in love and when you're totally head over heels, you're getting dopamine hits. And did you know that the science shows that that dopamine hit slows down and kind of drags off at three or four years into a relationship? No. <laughs> <laughs> some of you who just got married are like, no. And some of you who've been married for a while are like, yeah. That's like. <laughs> and I know the feeling comes back in new ways and in deeper ways. But I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying, if, we're ta- if we only think of love as the feeling of love, and the chemistry, and that passion, hey, scientifically, that's going to go. And that's why the Christian view of marriage is so much more important. Because it's not, I love how Tim Keller says it very succinctly. He says, a covenant, Um, it's not the declaration of present love, it's the promise of future love. It's not saying, hey, I love you. You can say that and not be married. I really, really, really love you. Right? No, but it's saying it's not. It's not saying um, this is how I feel. It's saying this is how I'm going to be. This is how I'm going to be when it's tough, when things are difficult, when the feeling's not there. Having faith and hope that God is going to resurge it in new and more deeper ways. That's what a covenant is, and we see that in the passage because in verse uh, twenty-eight or thirty. Um, Uh, Paul speaking actually quotes Genesis 2.24, which is the Old Testament's definition of marriage. Again, first first chapters in the Bible where it says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a covenant, not just chemistry. A few other ways it's countercultural before we move on um, to the last point. But even the commands to submit and love are countercultural. We know they're countercultural now, but I I think the thing that we miss a lot with this passage is that in several ways, they were countercultural back then. I think a lot of people um, look at this passage, or at least some people, and say, well, that was then, and this is now, and our culture is different, and why are we trying to go backward? We're 2,000 years, we're up here. Um, And I think if you're not careful, what you can do is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. You can kind of look in the back and say, well, we're better than them because we're, you know, we're newer and we're fresher. <laughs> and we're here now. And we know what life is more now because time passed. <laughs> um, <it's laughs> but our culture is different. And I'll give you that. It's way different. And in some ways, it is way better. Some ways we have discovered personal rights that are way better. And in a lot of ways, women are treated way better and that we should celebrate that and be on the front of that as Christians. But what I'm getting at here is not only is it countercultural now, it was countercultural then. Let me give you a picture of that. And I'm going to not read through all these notes, but I'm just going to try to kind of do it from Um, memory-ish. The passage that we're looking at today... um, People call it like a household code. And this was common back in the ancient times. And basically, it was a a way of understanding society. And they're saying, we're going to, the the household is a microcosm of the whole society. So if we understand the relationships in the household, we'll understand how all society should be ordered for the common good. Um, But in those household codes, um, men were given uh, patria potestas. In the Greek times, and the Roman times, it meant that the husband or father had the legal control and power over the whole household, over, over their wife, over their kids, if they had servants, over them. And so the household codes didn't even address women or kids because they didn't have to, because they said, oh, the husband, oh, that's just the ruler, right? Aristotle, anyone heard of him? Aristotle had household codes. He said this, it's part of the household science to rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. I'll let you guys get angry at Aristotle for a bit. <laughs> Everyone takes in a deep breath. It's like nostrils just got bigger all over the. Head. So that's a little picture of of the context. But here's another picture: the head and body metaphor that's being used in the scripture. The that, that head and body metaphors were used in, in culture at large, and someone who's uh, written extensively on this, and there's tons of scholars who have, but uh, Michelle Lee Barnwall, uh, tells us about how head and body metaphors were used. and usually it was like in politics or military, and they would use it in speeches, but they would say, like the emperor Nero, he's the head, and we're the body." And um, the head is the most important part. And And the way that metaphor would function is it's all for the common good, but the head is the most important part. And so the body needs to serve the head for the, for the head to endanger itself was not honorable. That was shameful. The head's role was to preserve itself because if he wasn't preserved, then the body didn't live. So the way it was used in culture, and, and, and the same thing with love, the head was not expected to love the body, the head was seen as deserving of more love, and the body was told to love the head. You guys tracking so far? Yeah. So when Paul writes this, and this is why I love the scriptures, because yes, he is in a culture, but he's not just copying the culture, he's giving us the word of God, the Holy Spirit is inspiring the scriptures and speaking through him, and he appeals not to how culture is. He appeals to how we were created as male and female, and he appeals to what Christ did for us on the cross. And, and how he uses the same metaphor is this. It, so, well, first of all, he addresses the women. The other household codes didn't even mention the women. But he not only addresses the women, but addresses them as moral agents who can choose what they want to do with their lives, And he addresses them first. And he says, here's what you should do to honor Christ in your marriage. Choose voluntarily to submit. Just like you choose voluntarily to submit to Christ because he's Lord and it's hard sometimes. But he he doesn't say, submit to your husband as ruler. The example he gives of authority is of Christ. And how did Christ show authority? By giving himself up. And so he, in, in, in this scripture, we see women given great, uh, it's countercultural. They would have heard it and been like, whoa, why did he start there? <laughs> but then it gets more countercultural because then he, when he goes to the husbands, he doesn't say husbands rule. He says husbands love. Now we say, duh, <laughs> but they would have been like, huh? <laughs> and I'm being serious. In the, in the Roman and Jewish literature, husbands were rarely, if ever, told to love their wives. And in household codes, in the history of household codes, this is the first one that ever tells a husband to love their wife in history. So hear me out. We say, duh, of course. But they're like, what? You're starting with that? And think about it in terms of how they used head and body, right? The body was supposed to give itself up for the head, The body's main function was to love the head. And what does he tell husbands? You're the head. And that's what we get all upset about. And we take it beyond where it needs to go or whatever. But that's what we get upset about. But he says, here, you're the head. But here's what headship looks like in your marriage. Instead of doing whatever costs to save yourself and for your pleasure and your comfort, give yourself up. It's measured in Christ and what he did on the cross. And I have a couple quotes, uh, one or two from, um, from Michelle Lee Barnwell talking about this. While this behavior would be shameful in the larger culture, it was considered honorable in God's economy. As Christ did not use the rights of his headship for his own gain, but instead sacrificed on behalf of the church, so too are husbands to sacrifice for rather than dominate their wives. Another quote, rather than being accommodating to cultural expectations, Paul proposes a way that would be seen as causing a great social disruption. The irony is that he says that in Christ, it actually leads to the opposite, creating intimate unity and harmony between husband and wife. One more brief thing before I go to the last point. How it's countercultural for us. We hear husbands, love, and here's the way I think it's countercultural in our culture. The men in this, in, in this, in the marriage scenario, are given a role. And our culture is more and more confused about what it even means to be a man. We don't know. Or or I, I mean, if you want me to prove the point, you know, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say masculinity? I heard a few words. I heard the one that I wrote down which was toxic. But I heard but I know there's we don't have a consensus on what it means. But here in the passage it says, "No men, you do have a role." And our culture says, "Okay, here's what it means to be a man. Be macho, be domineering. Have multiple partners and don't commit to any of them until you have to." Or it's on the other side and says, just play an ambiguous role and don't really know what it means to be a man or to be a husband other than you have a deeper voice and you have to shave your face. Like, (laughs) we don't know. We don't know. I don't know. I love what John Stott says. He says about, about headship and this role of the man in marriage. He says, if headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not frustrate it or destroy it. And in all of this, the standard of the husband's love is to be on the cross of Christ. That's what we're called to, men. That's what we're called to. And I know that on the other side, what's countercultural? Just the word submit itself. That word is countercultural. What what comes to mind for me is UFC. (laughs) UFC. Two guys down on the ground and like one's got the arm and he's like bending it how it shouldn't bend, you know? You guys with me? And then, or, or Conor McGregor getting choked out, you know, my, my own personal hero, um, the Irish. No, but it, that's what we think when we think submission because they finally at the very last second, they tap out and they lose. That's what it means to submit. <laughs> Try your hardest not to do it and then you lose and you're less than. But what the Bible is telling us, that we're presented the opportunity in a countercultural way, a choice to follow Christ and to show his love in our marriage through that love. It's countercultural. Last point I'm ending with is this. Christian marriage is a mysterious union. Christian marriage is a mysterious union. I think when people argue or misunderstand or debate this topic, a lot of times we're focusing on uh, the body or the head or the role of each other or the authority and who does what and what it looks like. And one of the things I think is beautiful about the passage is that it leaves room. It doesn't say this is what this looks like down to the T. It just gives us the commands. And, And let me tell you, I think that's because God intended us to live out these principles in our marriages in different cultures and in different times. It's not just bound to 2,000 years ago. But one of the things we get mixed up is we focus on all these other things and we miss out on the mystery that, uh, that the passage even mentions at the end, this mystery about the unity that we have in marriage and the unity that is between the church and Christ. Another quote from Michelle Lee Barnawal, I, I think... Uh, uh, just say it. The New Testament speaks of the inability of either authority and leadership or equality and rights to produce unity in and of themselves. Promoting personal rights is intrinsically about what benefits or is fair to the individual rather than building up relationships between individuals. Authority may provide order and efficiency, but not intimacy. Again, this is not to say that either is wrong, but rather that both are limited. Look at these verses, verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You see, this metaphor of head and body, it's not the first time it shows up in Ephesians. It showed up two other times. And both times, it's talking about Christ and the church, and it's talking about the mysterious union, that everything that we who believe in him are being brought into unity with him. And that in, in chapter 4, verse 15, it talks about that our source and, and our strength and our nourishment comes from him. That the, here's what I'm getting at. The head and the body are united and inseparable. And so we go wrong when we just focus on one or the other. What is this person supposed to do? What is this person supposed to do? I think uh, those are good good things to talk about and good things to work out in your marriage. But I think uh, another principle that's even deeper is the unity and the inseparability of this. It makes no sense to have a body without a head. It makes no sense to have a head without a body. Anytime we see that or hear about that, we cry or (laughs) are terrified. Another person got decapitated. (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that. I'm just saying it's ridiculous. We don't think of a body in those terms. We think of the unity of the two. We think of the unity, that that it's really one. And so when Paul was talking about this, he gives us this passage, this quote from the Old Testament, the first pages of Scripture about a husband and a wife and about uh, uh, the husband will leave his father and mother and, and cleave to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And, and that's a covenant on the first pages of Scripture. And covenants, if you don't understand covenant, you don't understand the Bible because that's the way God reveals himself all through the Bible. God made a covenant with Adam. God made this covenant of marriage. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. And then Jesus made a new covenant with his blood. And then we get to Ephesians, and Paul is talking about marriage and the incredible unity that we have, and then he switches to something that blows our minds. He says this in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What we thought was just about marriage is actually even deeper than that. The intense care of Christ for the church, the intense union between Christ and the church That in some way that we don't fully understand, Christ left heaven, left Father, and came down to earth to be united to his bride, the church. That in Ephesians 2, when it says, the two groups, the Jews and Gentiles who never got along, he, two groups became one. And now when it talks about husband and wife, two become one. Here's what I'm getting at. There's a mysterious union That God is saying, when we we walk into this commands, when we walk into this Christian marriage and this covenant, that even our marriages get to proclaim the gospel of grace. Even our relationships get to proclaim Jesus. When you see my marriage, I want you to see a little bit of what Jesus did for me. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so wise. It's so wise. I, I, I've done a, a horrible job of it. I can't get to the end of it, but it is so wise. And I know that there's, there's beauty here, and it's so different from what we're taught by our culture. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, it's probably different from what you've, you've learned. But it brings us from self-centered to self-giving. It brings us from what makes me happy to how can I serve you? And you won't get it if you control V or control X. You won't get it if you, if you just prioritize the chemistry over the covenant. You won't get it if you just follow culture. The only way you'll get it is when you receive that kind of love of Christ for you. Not only did he leave heaven, he was forsaken on the cross, So that instead of being forsaken for our sins, we could be united to him. <laughs> we could be forgiven and free. Instead of separation from God that we deserve, we could experience this deep union with Christ that we can't even put into words. The, the closest thing we can say to it is this covenant between marriage. Two became one. And we, I know there's still two people, but now they're one now. And, and yet Jesus says that's what's happening with us a deep union that grows closer and closer until one day we see him face to face. When you see that, church, when you see that, when you see he left his glorious side, when you see that he had his rights and yet he set them over here, when you see that he submitted to the will of the Father, when you see that he gave himself up in love for you, not only when you believe that, when you turn from sin and believe that, not only will you be saved, it'll begin to affect you deeply. It will affect your relationships. It will affect our marriages. By the grace of God, with a prayer on our hearts, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. In a culture that has gone off the rails as to what marriage even is. May the people of God be known as those who humbly offer a different way. A better way. A way based in the scripture in a way based in the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to come together this time. I thank you for time to worship you, time to honor you in praise, time to remember how good you are and how great you are. Lord, I've spoken humbly, and I know that I can't say everything there is to say about this passage, I never could. I know there's other people who have said it better, and I know there's probably people who wanted me to say things I didn't or wished I didn't say things that I did. But, Lord, I trust through all of it that more than anything, I said that your spirit is moving. And I pray that you would guide this church. God, we come to you hurting and broken, Lord. I know that marriage is not easy for anyone. And I know that there are people here today who have already been married, who are are still healing and still hurting from the pains of divorce. Maybe those are here who feel like they're about to be divorced and headed that way and don't know how to change it, Lord. And I, I can't offer solutions, but I know that there is hope in you. I know that your word was given to us not to be disregarded or to be explained away, but to be wrestled with and to be applied in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you'd help us, those who are here as husbands or who are looking one day to be husbands, help us to take this to heart and to find out what it means to follow you in this way in our marriages. For those who, who are here who are wives or who hope to one day be wives, I pray that you'd help us to find out what it means to follow you in our marriages. God, for those who are here who are are single and and are are given the gift of celibacy or want to be married or don't want to be married or whatever it is, I pray that you would help them too to be encouraged. Help every one of us to be encouraged by your word today. Help us to be cut to the heart, moved to repentance, and yet healed by you. Just pray that you bless this time as we respond to your word. We invite you, Holy Spirit. We, We cry out. We ask that you bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.